0: You may be seated. Is everything okay up there? (laughs) Okay, sounds better. I hope. Do you guys want me to shut this off and just use this? Okay? All right. I think we're going to make it here. I think anybody can preach after that singing. What a a tremendous... ...songs to bring us from thinking about the birth of Christ all the way through His death, His burial, His resurrection. In Christ alone, we can... Take our stand. Amen? Amen. Thank you for that. Makes it uh, exciting to preach. It's a great time of year, isn't it? I was thinking about uh, that this week. We're putting our tree up this afternoon. I think Lydia and Marcus are coming over, and uh, we always do that. Try to do as many family as we can to do that. And then we always have root beer floats and a lot of tradition, isn't there, around the Christmas season, a lot of family time, and and it's good. It's good to think it through. There's a lot of people struggling this time of year. I don't know how many times I've heard uh, in the past week or so people already saying, I hate Christmas. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? I heard it on uh, one of the Fox News later shows last night was one of the ladies said, I really wish we wouldn't use Christmas songs this time of year. I'm thinking, I I can't even imagine not thinking about Christmas songs this time of year. It's such a great time, isn't it? Um, This year is going to be exciting for our family because our oldest daughter, Malia, has a baby boy due on December 24th. And we're all going down. The whole family's going to be at, at Malia's house for Christmas. And uh, that, that's going to be an exciting time. We've already seen this kid on ultrasounds. I mean, the pictures they have of him today, you feel like you already know him. <laughs> and um, I was thinking the first thing this grandson's going to see is, is his grandfather with a beard. And he's going to say, Grandpa Claus. (laughs) It's not going to be good. I might have to shave it off. This morning, I want to begin by asking you a question. Have you set any goals for this Christmas season? It's that time of year, isn't it, to think about what are we going to think about this year? What are we going to focus on in this season of Christmas? And if we were setting goals for Christmas, I would assume that pretty high on your list of things would be something like, you know, I want my love for Jesus Christ to be strengthened during this Christmas season, and I want it to become richer to me and more genuine to me and more real. There's a lot of unreal things going on during Christmas as well. But we know the real meaning of Christmas, amen? And we sang about it this morning. I trust if you were setting goals, that would be your testimony this morning, and I'm assuming that it would be. And if that's the case, let me ask you this. Does, Does simply scheduling Christmas on the calendar automatically help you reach that goal? Will every person who experiences Christmas the American style automatically be more in love with Jesus Christ when the dust settles and we get through everything this month? Will they automatically be more in love with Jesus Christ? I think the answer to that is probably no. In fact, we know that at least hypothetically, it's at least hypothetically possible That the way you function in the next three weeks will actually not only take us forward in accomplishing a goal like that, but it's possible that we actually go backward. And the obvious irony of that is that this time of year is set aside, at least by Christians, to celebrate the birth of Christ. And at times it can be anything but celebrating the birth of Christ. The question then is this, how can we, how can you, how can I go through this Christmas season in a way that helps us to accomplish the goal that we're going to be more in love with the Savior and deeper and fuller in tune with what is happening in the Christmas season? You might say, well, I'm going to do that by reading, I'm going to study, I'm going to meditate on the Word of God and Scripture during this time to keep My mind focused on what it needs to be. And that would be a real good answer. Someone else might say, you know, I'm going to take the thing one step further, and I'm not simply going to contemplate on the biblical truths around Jesus' birth, but I'm also going to think about why he came and how he lived and why he died and how he was resurrected and the gift of salvation that was brought through this baby being born. That's kind of what I saw in the songs today. That was was just beautiful description of of all that kind of thinking that needs to be happening. So we're not going to just look at the biblical truths around the manger. This person would say, I want to think about how the manger in the context of the overall plan of God affects me this season. And that would be a great answer. Because it didn't just start in Bethlehem. It didn't end in Bethlehem, did it? It started in the Garden of Eden. Because man's sin is what initiated this need of the coming of the Savior. And our understanding of this doesn't end there. And so that second answer would be even better. But I want to consider even a third answer this morning, and this morning I'd like to offer something that you could be thinking about this Christmas season to maybe help us focus on the reason why Jesus came and how that can affect you and I in our everyday life. And so I want to, for the next couple of weeks, as the need be, as John's going to be having surgery this week, we know that there's several weeks that he's going to be out, but until that, until that goes through, for the next few weeks, I want to focus on looking at Christmas from the prophet's perspective. Most of us know many of the details surrounding the prophecies of Jesus Christ and how they had been prophesied hundreds of years before these events happened. That's really one of the many reasons that God gave them to us and gave us the message. And to understand and believe this message was the message of fulfilled prophecy, right? And I imagine that many of us could even mention and name many of these Old Testament prophecies by memory at this point. I imagine if I posed questions to you like that, uh, of, but what I want to think about this morning is something in a little bit deeper way. Like if I were to ask you this morning these questions, it might be a little more difficult. What was happening at the time of those prophecies when they were originally given? Why were they given in the particular way and at that particular time? Or what was the historical context in which these Old Testament prophecies about Christmas were given, and how did God want that information to affect the original hearers, and how would he want that information to affect us? That might get a little more challenging to think through what exactly was happening in the historical context of these prophecies. And that's what I want to do this morning and in the next couple weeks. And I hope that when we're through, that our relationship with Jesus Christ is either established, if you've not yet trusted in him as Savior, or if you have trusted him as Savior, I trust that your relationship with him will be enhanced. That you'll grow a little bit deeper in your love for him, a little bit deeper in your commitment to him. And with that in mind, I want you to take your Bibles and go with me to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one. Now it's obvious that Matthew is not an Old Testament prophet, but we're going to start here and then we're going to go to two other Old Testament passages. Now, if you're saying it sounds like this is going to be a little more work than usual this morning than just looking at the shepherds and the mangers, you're right. It's going to be a little bit deeper than that. But this morning we're going to work a little hard, but I think the effort is worth it. Look at it with me in Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18, and I'll read down through verse 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph awoke from the sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, as you're reading in that text there, and if you have a study Bible, you'll see that verses 22 and 23 contain several prophecies that Matthew explains to his readers. And today we're going to study Chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, which is from the prophet Isaiah. So we're going to be going back to Isaiah as well. But for our purposes today, Matthew 1, 23, and from Isaiah, consider God's power. Consider God's purity in this, his power in this, his purity in this. And the personableness of the fact that Emmanuel means what? God with us. This is amazing. This prophecy. Now in your notes there, I put the virgin birth of Jesus Christ was predicted in exact detail 700 years before it occurred. And Matthew says, think about that. Think about the power in that. Think about how pure God must be to make sure that this birth was a virgin birth. We'll have a lot to say about his power and his purity and the personableness at the end of this message today. But for our purposes, I want to start this morning and talk about a little bit of the history here and ask ourselves some questions of, uh, in your notes here, why was this prophecy given? And why was this prophecy fulfilled? And then lastly, how should this prophecy affect you and I today? We're going to go to Isaiah uh, chapter 7. If you want to start going there, we'll be there in a minute. But let me ask you a couple other questions to get you thinking about the history of this here. Who was the king of God's chosen nation at the time this prophecy was given? Do you know who that was? Some of you said it. Good. What was the king doing at the time? Was it a good king or an evil king? How was this prophecy that was given to this king, how was it supposed to affect him? And did the king allow this prophecy to affect him the way that God wanted it to affect him? You might say, well, I'm I'm not sure. But I trust by the end of this morning that you'll have an idea about all of those things and we will be able to make some applications to us today based upon the prophecy that was given to those at the time. So let's begin by talking about why was the prophecy given. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 10 here in a minute. But why was this prophecy given in the first place? And the answer there in your notes there is number one, because King Ahaz had to make a decision between doing things man's way or doing things God's way. That's why it was given. Now, I realize you might say, well, that really changes my life, Dathan. Well, let's see what's going on. I trust that this does change your life a little bit. What's going on, Isaiah chapter 7, starting at verse 10, and we'll move through this rather quickly, and again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of your Lord God, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, Ahaz's response sounds a little bit pious here. Like, I'm not going to put the Lord to a test by him giving me a sign. But actually, we're going to see that Ahaz was being a little bit stubborn here. And that's evident from God's response to him in the next couple of verses. Look at verses 10 through 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask again and, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Look at 13. And he said... Hear then, that being Isaiah saying to him, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you would weary my God also? God is asking for him to give him a sign. He said, I'm not going to do that. So Isaiah is getting on him a little bit here. And then in verse 14, we all know this verse, and then the Lord Himself will give you a sign. He says, you're not going to ask for a sign, but I'm going to give you one anyway. Behold, he says what? A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, what do we have so far? God comes to King Ahaz, and he says, ask for a sign so I can demonstrate my greatness to you. And make it a big one. Why? From the depths of hell all the way to the heights of heaven. Anything in between, you want to ask me. Ahaz feigns this falsy piety which God quickly condemns. But then in his grace, he gives him the sign anyways. And in an amazing economy of words here, he says that someday a baby was going to be born of a virgin. That's amazing in and of itself, right? And that that baby would be Emmanuel, God with us, the very Son of God. Now we still have a question here. Why in the world would God have given this prophecy to a man like King Ahaz? It already appears that he wasn't That close to the Lord, but God said Ahaz was trying, he also God was kind of trying his patience back in verse 13 and 12. But we need to read verses 1 through 9 to get a little context here. So go back to verses 1 through 9 of chapter 7. This is a very important point here. There's a lot of names here, but these aren't as hard as last week. 7-1. In the day, days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not mount an attack against it. Alright, so at this time in Israel's history, the nation was actually divided into two parts. The northern tribes were, which kept the name of Israel, and then there were the southern two tribes which had the name of Judah. And Ahaz was the king of Judah, and what's happening here is the northern tribes had made an alliance with the country, country of Syria, and they were coming down to fight against the two southern tribes of Judah. Well, let's keep reading here what's happening. Verse two, when the house of David was told, Syria was in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shook before the wind. Now, it's a restatement of what we've already said. The northern tribes are coming down to war against the southern tribes of Judah and Ahaz and all of the people were shaking like a leaf, so to speak. They were afraid. Someone is coming to attack them. Now verses three through nine, and I'll read this whole section here, what happens next? And the Lord said to Isaiah, "Go out and meet Ahaz, you and sheer Jazhub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer field." And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has divided evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as the king in the midst of it, thus the Lord God says, it shall not stand. It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That's a good thing to underline in the Bible. Right? If you are not firm in your faith, He's telling Ahaz, you will not be firm at all. Now what's the point? King Ahaz is in a very difficult situation. The country is being invaded by others, and he's under some tremendous pressure to do something about this. And God comes to him and says, in effect, relax, I'll take care of these ten northern tribes, and in 65 years they won't even exist They're going to be wiped out. Don't try to work this problem out on your own, Ahaz. Don't try to work it out in your own strength. I've got this. And to help you trust me, God says in the following verses right after what we just read... Let me pull back the pages of history and let let me show you something that I'm going to do 700 years from now. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and he's going to bear a son, and we're going to call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And King Ahaz, regarding this trial and this difficulty you're facing right now, you have every reason in the world to handle this using my methods instead of God's methods because if someday I can fulfill a prophecy like that, guess what? I can help you right now. That's the context of this. Now here's the $100 question. What do you think Ahaz did? How, did? how did Ahaz handle this? And the reason, he, he, he receives this prophecy about a virgin birth. He's told what God would do for him. And it's true that Ahaz doesn't have the benefit of knowing everything that we do. But he did have the benefit that he was hearing this directly from God and directly from God's prophet. What did he do? Do you want to know the answer to that question? Is it worth going to one more passage? We need to go to one more passage of Scripture, so let's do that. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings chapter 16. Now, when we go to 2 Kings history 16, this is the historical context of what we were reading about in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7 is the prophecy end of it. 2 Kings 16 is the historical end of it. What actually happened here. So let's pick the story up in 2 Kings 16 and verse 5. Then Rezin, king of Cereal, Cereal, yeah, Syria, I'm getting hungry up here. And Pekin, the son of Romalia, the king of Israel, came up to war, wage war on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. You see, we're talking about the same event, right? This is just what actually happened. Verse 7, let's pick it up there. So Ahaz sent messengers to Til- Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Syria, Assyria, saying, I am, Ahaz is writing to, to Assyria and saying to him, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. <laughs> what, what does Ahaz do? Now, now this Tiglath-Pileser was the pagan king of the nation of, As- of Assyria. Now, they were a dominant world power in that day, but they were also known for their wicked and brutal treatment of those people that he conquered. So Ahaz says, I want that guy on my side. And the bottom line is, Ahaz, instead of trusting God in his ways, like we talked about in Isaiah 7... Instead of doing that, he turns to man and his ways. And look what it cost him. Look at what it cost him in verse 8. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. Now he's taking the treasures from the house of God in the temple and he's using them to pay off this pagan king. And it even gets worse. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath Pileser, the king of Syria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exacting all the details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before the king. So he goes into this pagan temple and he sees an altar like, and that's kind of a nice altar. I like the way that's laid out. And so he draws it up, details it out in exact detail and sends to his priest. says, look, here's the details. I would like one of those things in our our temple. This is getting bad. It reminds me when one of the trips we went to Israel, we went through one of the old and ancient Jewish synagogues. And it was in ruins and it was tore down, but the floor was there and there was this mosaic on the floor of a Jewish synagogue of this huge zodiac. Were you there on that trip? I know John was there. And we're looking at this floor, this beautiful mosaic in a Jewish synagogue. In the very middle of the floor is this round zodiac in the middle of it. How how does that get there? gotta be thinking the same thing here ahaz sees this pagan temple and he sees this altar and he says i'd like to kind of have one of those for our temple this is not going well this is this is not going well at all so he's not only robbing the treasures of god's temple But he's desecrating the temple in this way and remember the exact furnishings for the temple and the exact procedures that were to be followed with that were very detailed out in the Old Testament and yet Ahaz is not trusting God at all at this point, so why should he be obeying God? Before the story's over, he's actually defaced several pieces of furniture in the temple and he's even closed the doors of the temple to God's people altogether. Now, please notice the summary here in verses 1 to 4. The Old Testament is this way. Often, you'll read the summary of something and then it'll go into the details. In Genesis, it's that way, right? In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. The next chapters start detailing how he did that. Similar here. We read the details of what happened here, but the summary is in verses 1 to 4. And it's interesting what he says in the 17th year of Pekah, chapter 16, verse 1 the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, he began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of of the nations whom the Lord drove out out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. How would that be on your tombstone? That's not a very good summary of a person's life. Ahaz. I don't know that that would be a good name for your child. Dathan wasn't a very good guy either, I don't know why. I got that name anyway. But why was this prophecy given, number one, because Ahaz had to make a decision to to operate under God's ways or man's ways. Clearly he operated under man's ways. The other reason this was given, I think, was to demonstrate the stubbornness of the human heart. Because even when King Ahaz had the prophecy of the virgin birth given to him directly from the mouth of God, so to speak, he still chose doing things man's way over doing things God's way. Now let's turn this around to you and me. Because I think there's some application here. When's the last time you were faced with a similar choice? Probably not exactly like this one. But when you think about it, you and I are faced with choices every day of whether we're going to choose to do it man's way or God's way. And so often in the words that we say, we must choose between using our tongues God's way or man's way. So in decisions about what we're going to do with our time, we have a choice. We're going to use our time God's way or we're going to use our time man's way. When it comes to decisions about how we're going to spend our money, are we going to spend our money God's way or are we going to spend our money man's way? When it comes to decisions about how you're going to respond to trials, are we going to respond to trials man's way or are we going to respond to trials God's way? Can you think of any situations in the past week where you were faced with such choices like that? And then I can ask you this, how are we doing when it comes to those situations? When you're at the fork in the road between choosing God's way or man's way, which way, which way do you typically go? Now, if we're honest this morning, I think most of us would say something like, there, there are times that I, that I go man's way. Anybody with me on that? I don't think we always make the right choice. You see, when I get in a jam and I, I get in this, this jam that I'm in, I've got time restraints and I've got to be here, here, and here in the next hour. I start scheming and I start conniving and I start plotting instead of maybe just stopping and praying, God, what would you have me to do here? Because I I really don't know which way to go. Or maybe when someone mistreats you and and you lash out and respond and, and perhaps even at times get even instead of returning good for evil and let God handle the whole vengeance thing. And I hope we're honest enough to say this morning, it's hard at times to choose God's way, especially when it requires patience. Especially when it requires waiting a little longer. Especially when it requires having faith to trust in Him in this. Especially it involves believing in things that that we can't see. Especially when it involves being different than everyone else around me and not being like the crowd. It's hard to be consistently putting off man's ways and putting on God's ways. And So if we we stop to consider this prophecy in its context, context, we're in a little better position to apply it to us. So secondly, why was this fulfilled? And and we're we're getting there. It's a lot here. Why was this prophecy fulfilled? And we alluded to this a little bit earlier in the beginning of the message. It was fulfilled to demonstrate God's power, wasn't it? King Ahaz Ahaz was trusting in the power of this wicked, cruel Assyrian king along with trusting in his own ability to figure things out on his own But Matthew wants his readers to understand that God, who is powerful enough to make and keep the promises of the virgin conception, is powerful enough to meet our problems. In fact, think about it this way. What was the most difficult thing you faced today? What was the most difficult thing you've faced this past week? Maybe even what is the most difficult thing you've ever faced in your life or can even imagine facing in your life? Now please imagine the amount of power involved in solving these biggest problems in this life and then... Over here on the other side of things, imagine the power and wisdom involved in predicting the virgin birth over 700 years before it came to pass. And having it be fulfilled exactly as it was fulfilled. And say, I can put my trust and faith in the God that could do that. Or I could try to figure it out on my own. how dumb is that Emmanuel God with us God with with me And I'm not trying to suggest that your trials and the things that you are facing is small, but I am suggesting that they are small in comparison to the wisdom and the power and the purity of the God of the universe. Amen? They're small in comparison to that. Why else was this fulfilled? To demonstrate his purity. The reason Jesus had to be born of aversion is because the sin nature is passed down through normal means, through procreation, through the man, right? Therefore, just as one man's sin entered into this world and death through sin, so that death, death spread to all men, for that all have what? Sinned. God's commitment to purity is so significant that He's willing to go to whatever lengths necessary to ensure that our redemption could only come through a perfect, unblemished sacrifice who would one day die for us. You see, man's ways leads us to sin and unrighteousness and a weakening of the foundations and this holy unmixture between the world's ways and man's ways. God's way leads to righteousness and holiness and a condition that the New Testament talks about as being unspotted and unblemished. Amen? So why else was it fulfilled? To to demonstrate his, his presence. This one, born of a virgin, would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And, and if you say this morning, Dathan, choosing God's way instead of man's way is too hard, the response would be, yes, that's true, if you're doing and choosing alone and you're choosing in your own strength. But remember, John said that God is going to be with us, He's going to tabernacle with us, And so we're not making these decisions on our own. God, it says Christ in you. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. Where would we be without that? Lost. Lastly, this morning, as we close this out, one more thought. How should this prophecy affect you and me? I trust it's already affecting you. Has it affected me? But how is this to affect us? I'll sketch out two different answers to that. First of all, in regards to salvation, be sure you've chosen God's way. The difference between man's way and God's way is pro- probably most pronounced when we come to the matter of how a person gets to heaven in the first place. Man's way says you can earn your way to salvation. You can earn your way to heaven. Just be good enough, right? Man's way says you can be good enough in and of yourself. Man's way says we're all God's children. Doesn't God love anybody in any way? God just loves everybody the same. So what does it really matter what you believe? Because God is love and God loves everybody the same. I want to tell you something, that's a lie from the pit of hell. That's man's way. That's man's mindset. That's man putting God in their own box and thinking about Him. The only way they want to think about Him is just He's a God of love. He is a God of love. But there's also other characteristics of God. So man's way says all religions are the same. Man's way Is broad leading to destruction. which Pastor Ken was talking about that beautifully in Sunday school this morning. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to Christ. You see, God's way to salvation is by acknowledging your sin. And acknowledging that you could never save yourself. You sin because you're a sinner. You sin because Adam's sin was handed down through all of us, through the seed of the Father. Our Father, my Father, passed it to me. But Adam's sin passed it down and down and down and down the whole way. So you're never going to save yourself. God's way is acknowledging that you needed someone to die in your place. God's way is then trusting in Jesus Christ, his Savior and Lord, receiving the gift of salvation that is available only through him. He says, "What I am the way, the truth, and the life. What? No man comes to the Father except through me. That's it. There's only one way to heaven. It's through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, born in the major, lived a perfect life because he was not a sinner. He was not a born a sinner and he had the right to die on that cross to take my sin upon himself and give me his righteousness. What a great exchange that was. And friend, I would ask you this morning, if you're here, has that, has that happened to you? It's hard to believe that Ahaz has had so much revelation from God and yet still stubbornly refused to follow God's way. But friends, we're not a lot better off than Ahaz because we've had a lot of revelation as well. So I know that if Ahaz could stubbornly reject what God tells him to do, I know at least we have the potential to reject him as well. And if you're here this morning and you've been following man's way to salvation, I would invite you today to turn around, to repent and to trust Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord. And if you need some help with what all that means, there are a lot of people here that can help you. And don't leave without talking to someone. Well, regarding sanctification, as we close this out, sanctification, we're talking about how does this affect us as believers, those of us who have been redeemed, who have turned our trust and faith into Christ. In sanctification, that's growing and changing. Be sure that you're making choices God's way. That's what we learn from this. What, what, what is the most likely situation where you're going to trust in something else other than God? What's your Tiglath pleaser? That's the king of Assyria. That's, that's what Ahaz trusted in. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to call the pagan king. He's really good at this war thing. What is our Tiglath pleaser? the wrong thing that we're trusting in. Someone might say, well, I'm most likely to choose man's way uh, when someone mistreats me, and my Tiglach-Pileser is explosive anger. I'm really upset. This is really bothering me. Now, I can either turn this over to the Lord and help Him to handle this, or I can blow up in explosive anger. Believe me, when you do that, you have just chosen man's way over God's way. Maybe you're here this morning and you know, when I'm faced with situations that are outside of my control, my tiglak pelezer is I am going to worry, worry, worry for the next three and a half weeks and I'm going to drive everybody nuts in the process. Believe me, when you do that, you have just chosen man's way over God's way. Maybe you're here this morning, he says, you know, when I have nothing specifically scheduled with my time, my Tiglath-Pileser is, is some kind of lustful entertainment. Listen, that's man's way. That's a man's way. That, that is not God's way. Someone else might say, you know, when I have the opportunity to speak for Christ, my Tiglath-Pileser is, is to be silent so that I can be accepted by other people around me. Listen, that's man's way. That, that, that's not God's way. And regardless of how you answer those questions in the future, I'd like to cur- encourage you to remember the virgin birth. Remember the virgin birth and the promise that was filled. We have God's power. We have God's purity. We have God's presence. Emmanuel. God with us. I was thinking about that with John. And I appreciate what Bill said this morning. John's sending verses that are ministering to him. If anyone's going through a time when we don't have a lot of answers about things, it's John. It just, just kind of keeps cycling around, doesn't it? John's still trusting God. John's still convinced about Emmanuel. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is going to carry you through the worst of times. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Is God good? God's always good. And even when we think he's not good, he's up to something good. And he doesn't want us to say, beam me up, God, it's time. He wants me to trust him all the way through. And maybe you're here this morning and you're in some rough waters. And the tempest is high. Here's the promise to you as a Christian, I am God, I am with you, I'm in the boat, I'm going to carry you all the way to the other side. I'm always going to be with you. What a wonderful prophecy. What a wonderful truth to live by. So come lead us in worship in a song.